and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is the episode of November 17, 2022. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate in fiat, money, or cryptocurrencies. My guest this week is Adam Kovacevic. He's the CEO and founder of the Chamber of Progress a new center-left tech industry policy coalition promoting technology's progressive future. We will be talking about the uh, cybersecurity implications and propaganda implications of TikTok. Should you be using it? What should the rules be for a Chinese-owned company that is this popular? You can hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, I'm chatting to Zoltan Case. He's from Hungary and uh, the government affairs manager at the Consumer Choice Center about a new Hungarian government policy that implements price caps on certain products. And I would also be talking about the French decision to ban domestic flights. So let's get started. So let's start with this story. Since uh, April this year, the French government bans domestic flights. That doesn't mean that there's no more flights within uh, within France, but the reasons for which you can take them is uh, restricted. So according to the rules, you can only take a domestic flight if you are subsequently on a connecting flight to a different destination. And you can also take a domestic flight if the substitution by train would take you more than two and a half hours. Essentially, the argument of the French government and of many NGOs that have argued for this is that the train, the high-speed rail connection within France is so good that instead of flying, you should use the train. Actually, also different operators are already in France. The Italian state-owned company Trenitalia is already um, on the line between Paris and Lyon, two uh, the, the biggest cities in France. And uh, Trenitalia, they're actually undercutting the price of French railway SNCF. The argument is also that it genuinely takes you less time to go to the train station and you will be arriving quite conveniently as well. And also that it will get you cheaper. Now, whether or not it gets you cheaper is a question. I know this might be anecdotal, but traveling within France for me has not always been cheaper or more convenient by train. And I'm not talking about namely those that are two and a half hours. Um, and that has many reasons. So SNCF is not particularly reliable. SNCF and its TGV high-speed trains are by far the company you will be most relying on within France, even though there are other companies. Now, for the most part, SNCF uh, brings you to places, and that's not just on the TGV trains, it's also on the regional trains. Very often, people will use their cars because they cannot rely on SNCF because it is very often on strike, one of the most uh, paralyzed train services around Europe because of the constant strikes of the unions of railway workers and the train conductors, the ticket operators, or just the infrastructure network. Um, then you have all the protests that block the railways um, for uh, differing purposes. Um, and also SNCF is constantly getting more expensive. If you take a last-minute SNCF trade, you're on a very different budget than you would be on a last-minute ticket on a cheap airline such as Hop or Transavia uh, or EasyJet. So a lot of that um, really depends on the circumstances. So while I can understand the environmental reasons that the French government most certainly has for banning those domestic flights, I'm not entirely sure how feasible this is. Um, 
because the calculation was done and you know we talked about this in the podcast before a couple of years ago where if you do get rid of all domestic flights this includes the one where a train journey of more than two and a half hours as a substitute would be included uh, you would have to about double the train network within france provided that well, the population is stagnant and um, that people travel just as much as they were earlier. During COVID, of course, that was different. But I think the uh, the reality here is that even though the French railway network is arguably quite good and gets you to a lot of places, and yes, SNCF also has a low-cost version called WeGo, which, um, which is quite cheap. You can get really cheap fares there. It is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, in some cases, people will use the plane because, well, they're a fan of aviation, because it's safer than using the train. Um, even though SNCF is quite a say has a good safety record, it's not. I mean, if you run the numbers, flying still remains the safest way of getting from A to B. It might be more conveniently located. Huh? If you're going to the business district of Paris, uh, you're often better served using a flight than to use the train because the train will get you in the city center of Paris and if that's on a um, if that's on a rush hour moment uh, it will take you quite a long time probably as long as your flight as your domestic flight was to get from one end of the city to the other anyone who's ever been to large cities such as Istanbul um, New York London uh, will know that traveling through a city is probably the worst part of traveling uh, in general so um, a lot of that uh, doesn't exactly work. It's a very performative measure and uh, probably doesn't cut the emissions that the government thinks it does because you know, the ETS scheme is already covering the, um, the negative externalities of the carbon dioxide emissions. Those who fly on short flights are essentially already paying for the privilege, paying to offset, um, where the government raises money to presumably subsidize projects that will further help protect the environment um, so there might be more of a shot in the foot uh, yes France is well equipped in terms of the infrastructure but it's definitely not where it needs to be and this means that it has to do a lot more investing and facilitating infrastructure to give people an alternative um, because even though it is a front runner it definitely doesn't have all the connections it needs and uh, if the result of this sort of ban is that more people use their individual cars, then we might actually see a negative impact on the environment overall. But uh, we'll monitor those numbers for you to see uh, to see how it goes. Next up, we have my colleague Zoltan Case. He's uh, from Hungary. He's a former MP of the Hungarian Parliament. and He's the government affairs manager at the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, we talked about price caps on different goods uh, in Hungary, a new decision by the Hungarian government under Prime Minister Viktor Orban. So yeah, let's listen in. Uh, the Hungarian government is suggesting new price caps. Explain for the listeners what exactly that entails, which products and services are included in that, and why the government is doing this. Well, uh, hi everybody. First of all, hi Bill, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is the third time in a year that the Hungarian government has been doing it. Uh, it all started off about a year ago, but it was all in my opinion due to the fact that we were leading up to an election so the hungarian government uh, used the phrase of leaving money with the people uh, in the, at the same time punishing uh, shops and uh, gas stations as the first uh, 
price caps came on some food produce like chicken, uh, sunflower oil, sugar, and also mortgages and fuel, diesel and 95 octane uh, petrol. Uh, then, uh, after the election was over, we all thought that uh, price caps will disappear, but the Hungarian uh, government miscalculated uh, two things. One was the war uh, in Ukraine, the other one was the uh, European Union's reaction to it. And uh, reaction, in, in this reaction, I also would like to include the fact that at present, it seems that uh, Hungary is not necessarily getting all the EU money it is used to be getting. Uh, so, so basically, the Hungarian government, uh, again, turned to this very awkward solution of uh, tackling the inflation, as it, as it said, which never does that. So if we, if we want to go on a path of a, a Latin American country, we're doing the good stuff. Uh, but right now, last week, the government announced that we are going to have price caps on eggs and potatoes. And, well, we have plenty of time in the future to see where it goes. Where the spirals, uh, I don't see that it's going to end up well. So Zoltan, you used to be a member of parliament in Hungary, in, in opposition, I, I, I should add. Um, in your time in parliament, from your experience, the, the way I would see it, I mean, the, the people in government are not necessarily uneducated to the extent that they don't know that price caps in an economic sense, don't work. So what is the what is the motivation? Is this just to appeal to a certain group, part of the population that gets them elected? Yeah, Bill, um, well, we have to add that we, we are talking about Hungary, which is a special case. Hungary is a one-man show. So who, it doesn't matter who sits in, in, in parliament, whether you're in opposition. If you're in opposition, you can't really do anything. So it was kind of frustrating for me as well. But even if you sit among the, like on the benches of the government party, it doesn't mean anything because everything gets to be decided by the prime minister. And uh, we are kind of used to it right now. It's been going on for 12 years. But the thing is, once uh, Viktor Orban wins an election, the next day he starts campaigning for the next election in four years or the next municipal or European parliament election, whatever. So it all, as you mentioned, is to appeal to the voters. And I have a very interesting and short story uh, on, on, on this because I know somebody who owns a small shop in a small village. And I talked to this man and, he, and, I, and I asked him how the, 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 the customers in, in his shop react. So, uh, and, and, and he said, well, they like it because Victor is giving them all that stuff. And I said, okay, what's going to happen to you? He said, well, I, I might go bankrupt sooner or later. And I said, okay, so what's going to happen to the people who will not find, uh, you know, a shop in their village? And he said, well, they're, they're going to have Brussels to blame for it, as it's always been in the past decade or so. That is, I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. I remember during, uh, in, in the beginning of COVID, the French government implemented a price cap on hand sanitizer because there was the claim that, you know, there's people who are stockpiling it and trying to benefit off of high prices of, of hand sanitizer. And what happened in the French case is that hand sanitizers were simply not being sold anymore by many uh, grocery stores and pharmacies in the beginning because it was simply not profitable for the business. You know, the same thing hap is happening here. I mean, if you go to a, a petrol station, you find that either they don't have uh, that kind of uh, petrol or there's a limit, like in, in my neighborhood at, at one station, you can only fill up your car with 20 liters of 
gasoline, which is not really helpful in most cases. And and the same goes with 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 with, with food products. I mean, already, I mean, it's it's been already it hasn't even been a week, but we see shortages, we see limits, and and people just don't understand it. They they buy the political stuff that's fed to them. I mean, it's 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 a very smoothly working political propaganda that's been going on, and you know. You, you know, if you have somebody to blame for your for, for your ill, it's, it's easy to explain. Well, uh, if, uh, if Viktor Orban is listening to this podcast, I'm happy to provide a copy of Economics in, uh, in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt in case he is interested. Zoltan, uh, this is as much time as we have for today. Just briefly, because the, uh, the listeners hear you for the first time on this podcast, where can they find you uh, on Twitter, somewhere uh, where they can read more of what you do? Yeah, I'm also on, on Twitter, so they just look me up. You look up my name, Zoltan Case, and uh, I'd be happy to answer questions if uh, they're interested. Thank you so much for joining us on the Consumer Podcast. Thank you, Bill. And last but not least, we have Adam Kovacevic. He's the founder and CEO of the Chamber of Progress, a new center-left tech industry policy coalition promoting technology's progressive future. And so we talked about TikTok, the relevance of TikTok, and the cybersecurity implications of the platform. So Adam, um, I wanted to get right into it. I read a blog post uh, that, that you wrote, or it was, it was published uh, somewhere, at least it's, 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 it can be found online, I'll be linking to it. You say, in past congressional hearings, senators, this is US senators, have asked TikTok whether the Chinese government has ever requested uh, United States user data. But that's the wrong question. China doesn't need to ask, they come in through the back door. That sounds very scary. What exactly is going on here? Well, you know, I, I should say I spent 12 years working uh, for Google in, in Google's Washington, D.C. office and was there at the time when Google had, you know, somewhat of a presence in China and then had an episode where the Chinese government essentially uh, hacked into Google's systems to steal source code and algorithms. And the company decided that, you know, it just couldn't abide operating in China anymore. And so I do think that, you know, one of the things that is is so unique about TikTok is that we've never before had a, a service that has captured the imagination, captured popularity, become so popular so fast, and is owned by the Chinese. And that's just such a unique situation. And we, you can't talk about a Chinese company in the same way you talk about an American company or a European company being somewhat divorced from the government, because in China, there's no that distinction just, you know, just does not exist. And so, you know, if you are a Chinese company, and you know you ex you want to continue operating and have chinese employees you have you know i th i think you have an expectation that the chinese government can get basically anything that they need to that they need to have some kind of perpetual backdoor into your data uh, data systems to have access to data user data and um but I, but as i saw talk about talking about the piece i think that's only one piece of the of the picture when it comes to tiktok i think there's also this propaganda um, problem as well. So, so let's talk about the cybersecurity aspect first, and sort of the, the, the user data there. Um, how can you? How, how do you imagine that this um, this this happening? Because we are talking about. I mean, I, I I wouldn't dare to try and estimate how many videos are uploaded and and uploaded to TikTok at every second, and how many comments are being posted. Um, it must be a massive operation if anyone tried to um, 
genuinely uh, try and analyze all this data. Is that something the Chinese government can do? I think it's something they could do if they wanted to. Um, you know, you know, I think the fact is that um, the way that TikTok, at least in the U.S., has dealt with this is they've um, launched this internal project that's really focused on moving all of their data to U.S.-based data centers operated mostly by Oracle. They have a, um, a, 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 basically a cloud partnership with Oracle. But there have been several reports over the last couple months um, in BuzzFeed and, and Forbes that have basically said this arrangement of having the data of U.S. users located in U.S. data centers was not going to stop access to that data by Chinese employees of TikTok. And if the Chinese employees of TikTok can get to it, then the Chinese government can get to it as well. It's, 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 a, it's an easy um, thing to do, right? And so I, I do think that, you know, all of that is possible. Are they doing it today? We don't know. I'm not sure that we ever will know, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, you know, be, but it's certainly possible today. And, you know, China has invested in, the Chinese government even has invested in, um, in artificial intelligence and a lot of these things at scale. They're well aware of the power of TikTok. There's a reason they don't let TikTok operate in China, like <laughs> TikTok is not available to the Chinese. And you sort of have to have to ask yourself, well, why does the Chinese government view TikTok as an important um, asset for China with respect to the US and, and Europe and the West, but refuse to let Chinese citizens use it? It's, I think, in something of a little bit of a, it's a commentary on just what a powerful um, tool it could be, right, for, for not only influencing people, but gaining insight about people. How can we identify what the difference is between, or maybe there is none, between uh, um, what is an arm of the Chinese government and what is an independent country that is under the constraints of Chinese government rules? To, to what extent is there even a difference between those two things? I think there was a time in China, China's history, maybe five, ten years ago, where you know th that was more possible. That is just not possible anymore. The, the government has, of the last two years in particular, um, really, really cracked down on its tech sector, I think for um, power reasons, right? For the, from the perspective of um, wanting to make sure that no company gets too big, too beyond the reach of the government, that it becomes this alternative power center in China. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I think that um, there are a lot of other cases in other industries where the Chinese government essentially has kind of hobbled their companies from doing too well outside of China. But TikTok is such an anomaly, right? Like it's, it, it, it has succeeded not through any kind of master plan of the Chinese government. I think it's kind of succeeded, not accidentally either, but it's been a kind of a happy um, circumstance, not not a master planned one. And so, um, but I, I, I just don't think there's any distinction anymore, right? I mean, the Chinese government has has disappeared people and, and you know, disappeared business executives. Like, there's, there's, I don't think there's any question about the government's um, uh, power over companies there. So I don't use TikTok myself, but uh, in the videos are quite prolific and you can find them all over. You can find them uh, ending up on YouTube and Instagram as well. Um, Talking about the propaganda aspect to it, if I if I the, the TikTok videos I see are clips, comedic clips, the way they used to be on Vine when that was a thing, or, or any of the other platforms, 
Um, to what extent can a foreign government use these tools to uh, influence not just election, but also the general uh, political mindset? I do think it's important to be honest about what's possible and what might be happening and what probably isn't happening. And I really, I think a useful comparison here is to RT, Russia Today, the, the Russian propaganda network, that until Ukraine was invaded by Russia, you know, was operating um, mostly in an un, unexamined way in Europe and the United States. And one of the reactions, the political reactions to uh, the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was that the Europeans and the Americans essentially kicked out RT um, pretty swiftly. And in retrospect, I think a lot of people look back and they say, why did we ever let RT operate here, right? It was a government propaganda network. And when you really look at RT's programming, at least in the U.S., which I'm more familiar with than in Europe, it was kind of heavy-handed propaganda tool. Um, but also they would do things like stoke division, right? This is a Russian Russian uh, kind of propaganda attack, which was to stoke division, divide U.S. society so that it can't unite against foreign threats. I don't think anything like that is going on within TikTok. Uh, I do think, though, that it's much closer to what you see uh, with China's influence on Western business in terms of what's not said, right? So, for example, uh, you know, about a year ago, there was a whole issue around the National Basketball Association here in the United States and an owner and one of the teams speaking up against um, China's treatment of the Uyghurs. And China, basically, which has a robust business deal with the NBA, you know, coming back and saying, you know, that's not okay, right? We're, we're, we're th- we, we don't appreciate that kind of criticism. And I think that's the kind of thing that is the kind of propaganda influence. I think in some ways, TikTok could actually be a more effective propaganda tool for the Chinese than RT was for the Russians, because I think it's mostly, it could, a lot of it could be about what's not allowed, right? What's omitted, as opposed to, I don't think anybody is seeing, um, you know, pro-CCP, <laughs> um, uh, you know, videos in their TikTok feed. And if we did, it would become, you know, instantly suspicious. And that's not the kind of thing I think we're talking about. It's much more about what you're not seeing. Um, what's, what's, what kind of content is not going to be allowed on the, on the platform. And that I think is a much bigger, uh, much bigger problem. And again, we look back on the RT situation and we say, why did we ever let that exist here? And I think my, my hunch is that we will look back at one day and say, why did, we ever allow the Chinese to own TikTok for as long as we did. In the United States, it's most certainly a conversation and you're, you're part of that conversation. And there, there's been in, in the last few years, a lot of political uh, uh, discourse on this. In Europe, I don't quite see that. To, do, do you think that certain parts of the world are simply just don't know enough about it, don't care enough about it? Uh, why is the U.S. leading the conversation on at least questioning to, to what extent these platforms um, should be operated and owned uh, by the people they are? Well, I think that, you know, politics and news is always a little bit of a lagging indicator, right? And I think there's a lot of politicians, for example, transatlantically, who are still very focused on Facebook, um, in part because of all of the Facebook revelations that came out in the Wall Street Journal and, and a, you know, a year or two ago. And, but when you really look at Facebook's business, 
Facebook's business is struggling right now. And, um, and I think partly it kind of tells you that this space of so- social media is somewhat fickle particularly with respect to um, new generations who also of young people who want to seek out their own spaces. And so it's very hard to maintain a lasting, um, you know, uh, appeal for new successive generations of people. And so I do think like TikTok's probably been the biggest beneficiary of that. Um, I, th- I think it's probably changing a little bit. There was a story just about two weeks ago that revealed that TikTok, um, TikTok, said to the European to European officials that Chinese staff can access European users data. I don't know that it had that much of an impact. Frankly, I don't think the US the revelations about their behavior in the US have had necessarily that much impact, but it's a growing chorus and and I always assume that there's more. There's more to the story. There's more that will come out and um and I suspect in time you know it will become clear that um that much as, you know, the US and I believe Europe have acted to against um, Huawei in terms of uh, networking equipment. You know, we've now effectively uh, made it very hard for Huawei to do business in the United States because we have strong reason to believe that, you know, the Chinese were using their networking equipment to spy on Americans, right? And so, like, we made it a priority to um, make it hard for them to operate here. And so uh, I, I suspect the same thing will happen in, in Europe as well. And again, I want to be clear. I think TikTok is a great service. My, I don't think it should be banned. I just think the U.S. authorities should require um, its ownership to be divested from, uh, from, China, from China to the United States, to a U.S. owner. Well, well that was most notably my, my next question. Like, how, how exactly would that, would that look? So there would be TikTok U.S. specifically that would have to operate fully out of the United States and it, it couldn't have a link at all. Because uh, what would that imply? Would that mean that uh, the Chinese company would have to sell it to uh, an American company? Yeah, I think one of the things that's happened in the last couple of months is the, is the Biden administration has been engaged in negotiations directly with TikTok through the CFIUS process um, uh, for re- re- related to foreign investment in the United States. And according to some of the reporting that's been out there, the there was a um, a, a, a plan on the table for uh, TikTok's algorithms to be audited on a regular basis by Oracle. Oracle is its um, cloud hosting partner. And the idea was that Oracle was somehow would somehow you know guarantee that there was no funny business happening with respect to, to Chinese access. Again, I don't think th- I don't think that um, Oracle would ever know. I really don't think that they'd be able to see what the Chinese government was doing, the influence that they've had. But also, Oracle is TikTok's business partner. They're not gonna you know business partners don't turn each other in, right? Um, Oracle would have a business interest, and I so I think that's a it was a little bit of a. Um, a, a little bit of a punt, frankly, and in that same reporting, there was um, uh, there was some reporting that suggested that other members of the Biden administration um, didn't agree with this deal and were concerned that the deal on the table was too lenient. I think that's one of the reasons why you haven't seen a deal for for that reason. You haven't seen um, because you know the reality is if you did that, you'd still you wouldn't really be doing anything about the Chinese control. And so I think it's pretty evident that if you're concerned about the China problem, the only thing that really solves the China problem is divestiture, to require that the service be sold to a U.S. owner. And that's something that the Biden administration could do. It's frankly something that the Trump administration um, tried to do in a pretty corrupt way. 
by essentially um, trying to negotiate a sale to their favored owner, right? In this case was was Oracle. I don't think the Biden administration should do that, but it's I think it's pretty clear there should be you know there there should be a divestiture. So Adam, we're almost out of time, but I had one last question for you. Um, your advice to consumers who say, "Oh, I just listened to Adam here, and I feel a bit concerned about this. I have TikTok on my phone. Should I get rid of it?" What's your advice on to consumers as to can you use the the, the app safely? Um, maybe you have other information on your phone that oh, maybe they have access to it. Like, so what exactly should what is the what is a good practice for consumers here? I'll be honest, I struggle with this one too, and I don't have a I don't have a firm recommendation because you know I have TikTok on my phone too. I don't post anything, but that's probably more of a function of me being in my forties <laughs> and being a little old for it, probably. Um, I do struggle with this because again, I think it's a great service. Like it's, it's earned its popularity. That's awesome. And so I, I, I want to be really careful that I'm, I'm not anti TikTok. I think it's a great service. I just think it should be owned by an American owner. Um, you know, I guess just be careful and, you know, like anything else, um, uh, use it with care, use it with an awareness. As I said, you know, a be aware that there's this this data security issue might be an issue. You know, there there could be something going on with Chinese government access, but also be aware that like there's stuff you may not be seeing. Being an informed consumer, I do think that um, at any individual user, I can understand the choice to continue using TikTok, but you know, I think it, it this really is a government solution, right? I, I mean, I I I I really think it's on the Biden administration to say. For national security reasons, this is not something we would never in the in the height of the Cold War, we would have never tolerated the Soviet Union, you know, owning a cable TV network. And essentially, this is kind of the same thing. All right. Well, thank you so much. Where can people read more of you? Uh, Twitter? Uh, where, where, where can they find more of your stuff? Sure. I'm on Twitter at Adam Kovac. And our organization, Chamber of Progress, is on the web at progresschamber.org. Thanks so much, and thank you for coming on the Consumer Podcast. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. I will be linking to Adam's writing in the description of this episode. Please do follow the Consumer Choice Center as well on all social media. It's on Twitter at Consumer Choice C, on Instagram, Facebook, all the different platforms. Uh, I don't think we're on TikTok yet. Uh, there might be reasons to, to think we should probably not do that. Uh, we shall see. In any way, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and uh, I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You just